John chapter 20. That's the text that we'll be focusing on this morning. And my goodness, what a wonderfully rich text it is. So let's read it. John 20, we're going to read the entire chapter. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came round to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen there, but they did not go in. And Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Women, why are you crying? They have taken away my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realise that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, Why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sides. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them, though the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand, put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord, my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, 
you may have life in his name. It's a great feeling when you can be confident and certain about something. Um, Often, when I'm confident or certain about something, that confidence is not really based upon anything factual. So I was fairly confident that uh, Hebs were going to do well this season. Um, And that's nothing to do with the facts, because the facts would tell me completely the opposite. Um, They would not do well this season. But sometimes we can be confident, and we can be confident and certain, because we know that something is true. And I think that as Christians, we would like to say that that is what we feel about the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what we feel about the gospel. We're confident, we're certain, because we know that it is true. But to be honest, I'm willing to bet for most of us, if not all of us, that's just not how we feel. There are times where we do doubt the gospel. We do doubt what we believe. Perhaps if you've been engaged in quite a heavy intellectual or philosophical discussion with someone about the gospel and about Christianity, and you just don't know how to answer them. And doubt can start to creep in. Or it could be even not just that we, uh, that we doubt the truth of the gospel, but we can doubt whether or not we're even saved. Whether or not God could possibly even accept us. Or it could be, especially if you're feeling outnumbered in the workplace or at university, it could feel like evangelism just doesn't seem to work and we doubt the power of the gospel to change people's lives and wonder, is this actually effective? Is it even worth me telling others about Jesus when they just seem to be so cold to it? Let me say that all those things are going to be tackled in John chapter 20. And John's aim, as he records for us this extraordinary event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is that his readers will have confidence and certainty about who Jesus is and all that Jesus did. All that John has recorded for us about Jesus up to this point is verified by this moment, by the resurrection. This is the miracle of miracles from which all confidence and certainty about the gospel comes from. And if you are here today, and perhaps you're not convinced about Jesus, but you're here investigating, wanting to learn more, John's aim is really simple and really blunt for you. He wants to convince you. I think uh, all throughout John's Gospel, he's very persuasive, but in this chapter especially, this is when he gets at his most persuasive. He wants to lay out the evidence for you of all that he has seen about Jesus, and he wants you to make a decision based upon that evidence. Will you believe? For those of us who do follow Jesus, he wants us to be certain that what we do believe is true. So to that end, there are three areas of Jesus' resurrection that John wants to touch upon um, that give us confidence and certainty and dispel doubts. You see I've got them there on the back of your service sheet. Three uh, things about the resurrection that give us assurance as followers of Jesus. Firstly, John wants us to know that the resurrection of Jesus is a factual event that assures us that Jesus is the Son of God. It's a factual event that assures us that Jesus Christ really is the Son of God. 
This is, for John, the ultimate sign in his Gospel. In the first half of John's Gospel, he, he records signs and miracles that he witnessed Jesus do, and he records them to show us who Jesus is. But this is the seventh sign. This is the ultimate sign, the perfect sign that reveals to us who Jesus is. And he wants us to see that this wasn't something that the disciples made up. This wasn't something that they fabricated in their minds. This wasn't even something that they expected to happen. And that's why if you look at uh, the start of this passage, um, you see that when Mary hears about this, she doesn't think, oh, brilliant, Jesus is alive. When she sees the empty tomb of Jesus, her first response is one of panic. She thinks that Jesus, his body has been stolen. And it's striking because Jesus, when he was with his disciples, and Mary would have known this as well, told them time and time again that he would have to die and that on the third day he would rise again. And he proved it to them by showing them all these miraculous signs and wonders. They'd even seen Jesus raise people back to life. But they still couldn't fathom the fact that Jesus himself would rise again. Because when we talk about the resurrection, and for most modern people, when we're talking about somebody rising from the dead, it sounds ridiculous. Because it doesn't really fit in with our sort of post-enlightenment, modern, scientific understanding of the world. But it's important to recognise that actually for the people of Jesus' time, it was just as ridiculous. It didn't fit in with the Greco-Roman worldview of the time. It didn't fit in with the Jewish worldview of the time. None of them believed that you could have a physical, bodily resurrection from the grave. So none of the disciples were expecting it. And here on the third day, the disciples are not waiting outside the tomb to see if Jesus would come back. They're off elsewhere. They're hiding away. And when Mary does eventually see this and she panics and she runs to to the beloved disciple in John's Gospel, which is John himself, she runs to Peter and she says to him, they have taken the body. They don't respond by saying, it's okay, Mary. He said he was going to rise again on this day. Instead, they start panicking as well. And they run to the tomb. In fact, a good translation of verse 4 would be, they absolutely legged it. And I, I, I love... I love the little detail. Look at verse 4. Both were running, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So (laughs) there you go. Just so that thousands of Christians throughout the ages would know that John was a lot fitter than Peter. (laughs) So young fit John gets to the tomb first and uh, breathless chubby Peter eventually catches up. But Peter's the first to step inside. Peter's always the first really to make a bold move out of the disciples. And he steps inside this tomb. And John follows, and as they step inside, they see lying there the burial clothes of Jesus. And John's very detailed in his account because it's an eyewitness account. He sees also the face cloth that was on Jesus' head folded up beside it. And as they stare at that, something happens to John at that moment, I think. And I reckon that as they're inside that tomb looking at those burial clothes, which show us, by the way, that the body wasn't stolen because the burial clothes had been left there. As John is staring at that, I reckon John starts to think back on all the things that he had witnessed Jesus do, all the things that Jesus had said. And I think especially because there's a strong parallel between John chapter 20 and John chapter 11, that 
John is thinking back to that incident in John 11 where Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave. He's thinking back, remembering that moment where he watched with a crowd of people as Jesus stood in front of the tomb of Lazarus with tears rolling down his face, filled with anger and rage, and yelled at that tomb, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus, who had been in the tomb for four days, John tells us, walked out. The dead man came out, and he still had his grave clothes and his bandages on. And as John looks at these grave clothes, the pieces of the puzzle start to fall into place. The fog of confusion starts to clear. But this is different to Lazarus. You see, John 20 is all about new beginnings. New things are happening here. This is radically different to Lazarus. Because whereas when Lazarus walked out, he had the grave clothes on, Jesus has left the grave clothes behind. Lazarus had the grave clothes on because Lazarus would have died again. Jesus did that miracle to show to people that he has power over death. But Jesus grave clothes are just left folded neatly. It's as if Jesus has said, I don't need those anymore. Because Jesus would never die again. This is something new. This is something incredible that is happening here. And John sees that and it clicks for him. He realizes at that moment, Jesus is not missing. He's risen. And of course, if you look at verse 9, he tells us that he didn't need to be surprised at all. None of them needed to be surprised. Um, After all, this is exactly what the Old Testament scripture had declared would happen to God's son. But it's only with hindsight, as he's writing this down for us, that he remembers that. The disciples didn't make this up. You see, the, the idea of Jesus rising, it didn't even fit with their understanding of the Bible. It's only later that that became clear for them. And all throughout this passage, these disciples and Mary and these followers of Jesus come to believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, because they see him. That's what's repeated all throughout. Verse 1, Mary saw the stone. Verse 6, John saw. Verse 8, he saw and believed. Verse 12, Mary saw two angels. Verse 18, I have seen the Lord. Verse 20, he showed them. The disciples saw the Lord. Verse 25, we have seen. Verse 29, after Thomas sees Jesus, Jesus says, because you have seen, you have believed. They really saw this. The physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus was not some idea in their head. This was something that they saw with their own eyes. And they believed. And I know that for us, when, when we hear about that, well, for me, certainly, my first reaction is, well, I've not seen, so how could I believe? And actually, that's a really important objection that John's going to deal with Uh, At the end of this passage, he's going to tackle that head on. But his point here that he's trying to convey is that the resurrection is a real factual event that is attested by reliable eyewitnesses. John doesn't want his readers, he doesn't want people to just blindly accept that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He wants them to, to look at the evidence. You see, faith in the Bible, and certainly in John's Gospel, faith is not a belief contrary to the evidence. Faith in the Bible is a belief and a trust in God because of the evidence. 
For John, trusting in Jesus is not a leap in the dark. It's a step into the light. And everything that Christianity is about, everything that we are about as a church, hinges upon this event here in John 20. It's not built upon some private revelation that an individual had. It's not based upon some subjective philosophical understanding of the world. It's based upon a public event that was witnessed by many people. The resurrection of Jesus from the grave is the stamp of authenticity that declares to the world that as Thomas says, he is Lord, he is God. John says you can be confident in what you believe if you're a follower of Jesus. You can be certain that what you believe is true because it is based upon a factual event. Secondly, John wants us to see that the resurrection is a personal event that assures us that Jesus has bought us peace with God. It's a personal event that assures us that Jesus has bought us peace with God. The resurrection is not just some cold fact, but it also has overwhelming personal implications. It verifies for us not only who Jesus is, but also everything that Jesus did. You see that in John's Gospel, Jesus calls himself the sent one. He was sent by God the Father on a mission. And that mission was was to give life to us. That mission was to reconcile us back to God because we are alienated from our Creator. We are not at peace with Him. Jesus has come to fix that and to take us back to Him. John 3.16, that famous verse, is a great summary of Jesus' mission. For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus' mission is to give life and forgiveness to his followers. And as we saw last week, that mission was complete. That mission was accomplished on the cross. When Jesus cried out those three words, it is finished. At that moment, humanity was no longer alienated from God, but all those who trust and follow Jesus now can be forgiven and brought into eternal life. And the resurrection... Well, the resurrection is the means by which we can be certain that that's true, that that has happened. And I think that we see this in John 20, beginning with this really incredibly moving and wonderful little one-on-one encounter that the resurrected Jesus has with Mary Magdalene in verses 11 to 18. Um, Mary Magdalene um, is one of these slightly enigmatic scriptural characters um, I was hearing a talk, somebody was talking about this and he was saying that Mary Magdalene was um, voted by Newsweek in 2005 to be the it woman of our times, which is really weird because we don't really know anything about Mary Magdalene. All we know from scripture is that Mary Magdalene was a woman who at one point in her life had uh, seven demons inside her. That's how the gospel writer Luke describes it. And, and whatever we interpret that to mean, It must have been absolutely terrible. And Jesus rescued her from that and brought her out of that. And she was so loyal to Jesus. She was part of a group of women that funded Jesus' uh, ministry. And she would um, follow him about. She was there at his crucifixion, unlike uh, most of the disciples. And here she is now, standing at his tomb. And she's confused. And she's upset. And she's panic-stricken. Her whole 
worldview has been torn apart. She doesn't know what's going on. She's wanting to know where her Lord is. This person who she cared deeply about, where is he? And Jesus, when he does speak to her, you know, she, she still can't see it. She's got two angels in front of her. She's got the Lord breathing down her neck. She's still quite, quite grasping. And when Jesus asks her, why, why are you crying? It's not, it's not one information. It's kind of a gentle reproof. Saying, Mary, you don't need to cry. And the thing that opens her eyes to understand who this person is, who Jesus is, is what Jesus says to her in verse 16. Look at what he says. He just calls her name, Mary. She sees it. And like John, she believes and it's reminiscent of what Jesus says back in John chapter 10, that he is a good shepherd who calls his sheep by name, and his sheep recognize his voice. And with that call, Mary, she sees the truth. She responds by saying, Rabbi, my teacher. And as she gazes at the risen Lord, for the first time in history, a person of this world gets a glimpse of the world to come. And I just love the fact that it's Mary. And she's probably so overwhelmed with joy that she runs and she grabs hold of Jesus. And this is why Jesus says to her, don't hold on to me. He's not saying, some of your translations will have Jesus saying, don't touch me. He's not saying that. He's saying, essentially, he's in the Greek, it's kind of something more akin to stop holding me so tightly, Mary. He wants to send her out. It's very warm and it's very personal because Christ, the King, as we have seen in John's Gospel, Lord of the universe, cares about individuals and he calls you by name. He says to Mary, go instead to my brother's the disciples that is, and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. The disciples, those men who had abandoned Jesus as moment of greatest need, those men who didn't believe what Jesus had to say, look at how Jesus describes them. My brothers. He says to Mary, tell them I am ascending. And look at how he phrases it. To my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus can speak in this personal, intimate way because his mission is complete. He finished that. That's what he's achieved on the cross. He can now phrase it like that. We can now call God our Father because of what Jesus has done. We now, like Jesus, share in the same privileges that he had. And that's why when he does at last meet the disciples, the first words that he says to his brothers are, peace be with you. It's not a rebuke for a lack of belief or a challenge as to why they had abandoned him. It's just peace be with you. Because they are at peace with God. We are at peace with God. That is what Jesus achieved for you and me at the cross. And that's done. That's finished. And to verify it to the disciples, he says to them in verse 20, look, here's my wounds. It's not some ghostly apparition. It's really me. 
I've really done it. Look at me. Those wounds. Wounds that that were the, the mark of human brutality against the perfect innocence of God have now come to represent something different for the disciples. The wounds that were the marks of unjust condemnation have now become, for the disciples and for us here today, the assurance of salvation. Wounds that cry, it's finished. We are at peace with God. And I know that there are times where we don't feel that. Where we don't feel that we're at peace with God. Where we feel far from Him. Where we feel that we've let Him down. And we wonder, does God really love me? Could God really accept me? And I think in those moments, what's good to do is to, is to remind yourself of the scriptural truth. Because what we feel is not the basis for determining necessarily what's true. But what's written here is true. And in those moments, to take something like John 19, verse 30, and to read to yourself, it is finished. Even though my sin is vile, even though I behave in a, a vile way, that doesn't matter. In one sense, because Jesus has paid the punishment for my sin, it is finished. I am at peace with God. John wants us to be certain of that. Our acceptance before God is not found in us and what we do or do not do, but in one place only, and that's the risen Lord Jesus. And right now, Christ sits at the right hand of the Father with scars on his hands and his feet as a reminder that our debt has been paid, past tense, and we are at peace. Thirdly, finally, John wants us to see the resurrection is also a sending event that shows us we have all we need for evangelism. There's a lot of sending language in John chapter 20. You know, when, like Mary, we, when we do actually see Christ for who he really is, and when we do understand what he has achieved for us on our behalf, it's so wonderful. And the tone of joy that is throughout this passage is one that is often felt when people come to understand Jesus. And you sort of, like Mary, want to cling on to him. And God goes from being this kind of abstract notion to becoming real and personal. That's why when Thomas gets it in verse 28, he doesn't just call Jesus Lord and God. He says to Jesus, you are my Lord and my God. But although it is indeed personal, It's never meant to be kept to ourselves. Jesus wants us to go out and to share that good news with as many people as possible. Because when Jesus Christ calls you into himself, it's always so that he can send you out again. That's what he says to Mary. The first missionary of the resurrected Christ is not the apostles, but is Mary Magdalene. He says, Mary, you've seen me, now go and tell and this is what he states to the disciples when he does to them in verse 21. As the Father has sent me, so I am now sending you. Jesus was sent on a mission by the Father to save the world, to make eternal life with God possible. He has finished that mission on the cross, but now there is a new mission. A mission in which Jesus sends the disciples to tell the world about his salvation. And he does something kind of strange to them in verse 22. He breathes on them and says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Um, it's, it's kind of a symbolic action of what is about to happen on the day of Pentecost. Don Carson, uh, in his commentary, helpfully calls it a, an acted parable. 
Jesus is symbolically showing them that the Holy Spirit will come from him to them and will enable them to do their mission. This is not something they're going to do alone. Jesus doesn't just pat them on the back and send them off. This is, this is still God's mission working through the apostles. And Jesus told the disciples earlier in John's Gospel that the Spirit indwelling them would enable them to remember all that Jesus had taught them. The Holy Spirit will speak through the apostles' words. As these men go forth, as they share their eyewitness testimony about the resurrected Jesus, that is how the Holy Spirit will speak. The message that they bring will be a message of forgiveness and life to a world that is in rebellion against God. Their testimony will contain the very power of God. And I think that helps us understand verse 23. Jesus is not saying that the apostles in and of themselves can forgive sins. But the message that they proclaim is the message of God given to them to tell the world. So how people respond to that message will determine whether or not they can be forgiven. It's through, John's point is that it's through what the apostles say that we have all that we need for belief in Jesus which leads to life with him. And that's why you've got this incident with Thomas in verses 24 to 29. It's there to highlight that point. See, in one sense, we can, we can kind of sympathise with Thomas because Thomas is not... He's got that brand doubt in Thomas. It's not really fair because he's just like all the other disciples. None of them believed until they saw. And so in one sense, we can sympathise with what Thomas is saying, that ardent sceptic that he is, but in another way, John is showing us that Thomas is actually a negative example to follow. When the disciples came to Thomas and said, we have seen the Lord, that should have been sufficient enough for belief in him. Because John's saying that the apostles' testimony is all that you need for proof to believe in Christ. You don't need to see to believe. That's from Jesus himself. He says that to Thomas. You don't need to see. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that is why John, immediately after this event, puts this summary statement in verses 30 to 31. If you highlight, if you've got your own Bible and you highlight stuff in it, that's the most important verses in John's Gospel because that explains why the entire book was written. This is what it's all about. John says to them that he wrote down these things, that he witnessed, this is his testimony, what we have here. He wrote this down so that we could believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's what Thomas should have believed because of their witness. And he's saying, I've written these things down so that you could believe. This is how God's Spirit speaks to us today. So our mission then is to continue the Apostles' mission. And we do that by sharing their testimony and their words. This is all that we need. And, well, how can we know that that works? How can we know that the Apostles' testimony is sufficient for belief in Christ? Well, very simply, you could just look around you. Here we are, 2,000 years later, thousands of miles from where this event took place, and there are people here in this room, there are hundreds and thousands of people in this country who will say that Jesus Christ is my Lord and my God, not because they have seen him, because they have heard about him. 
They heard about the Jesus these apostles testified to. The work of sharing the gospel is on a cosmic scale. And it's something that Christians have been doing since Jesus sent out his apostles in John 20. And it's the same gospel. It's the same eyewitness testimony that has been shared for thousands of years that has affected billions of people. And how can we be part of this then? Well, very practically, here's a good challenge from what John says in those verses. If what he says is true, why not, very practically this week, just offer to sit down with a friend or a colleague or a family member and read through John's gospel with them? Why not? John says that what he has here is sufficient for belief in Christ. And belief in Christ leads to life everlasting with him doesn't mean everyone will believe if they just read John's gospel. There's a lot who don't, who reject the message. Just like there was a lot of people who physically saw the risen Lord Jesus, but still wouldn't accept that he was God. Our call is not to make people believe. That's the Holy Spirit's job. But the Holy Spirit speaks through this. And our call now, as Christians, is to go out and to share this with people so that they could believe to proclaim this Christ. You know, as a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are, by default, a missionary. Planes do not make missionaries. But Jesus Christ does. And he calls us in so that he can send us out again. And we've got to remember that because we've done something in the West to Christianity that I think the early church fathers would have found unthinkable. We've made it this safe, insular, comfortable, middle-class religion. But the only way you can maintain that kind of Christianity is if you don't tell others about Jesus and you don't stand up for the truth of Jesus and you don't understand the implications of the resurrection of Jesus. If we have here in our hands a message of life and forgiveness to offer a world that is in rebellion against God, then let's share it. The mission of the resurrection is our mission as believers and here we have a reliable resource that's all that we need. Let me just close by saying if you're not yet a convinced follower of Jesus, now's the time really to assess these claims. I mean, these are big, bold, radical claims. John's not beating around the bush. As an author, he wants you to believe this. He really does. That is his agenda. Not because it's going to make you feel good, not because he wants to give you peace of mind. He just wants you to believe for the one simple fact, it's true. And if you are a follower of Jesus, know that because of the resurrection, we can have every reason to be confident in what we believe. We can be certain that Jesus really is God, that our sin really has been dealt with, that we have all that we need to do his mission, all that we need for effective evangelism. We can be certain that even in the face of death itself, we need not fear its sting, for we worship one who has conquered. A king who reigns, a king who lives, my brother, my Lord, and my God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that here we have a reliable 
resource. That you are Christ, the Son of God. Father, help us to share the testimony of these apostles, these men that you sent out to the world to testify about you by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us to share their witness because, Lord, we know that what they testify about you is true and certain. And it leads to belief, which leads to life everlasting. Father, help us. And I pray for any of us here today who are just feeling uncertain and doubtful. Lord, may the message of the resurrection um, reinforce them with the truth of what they believe. Thank you, Lord, that we're not just following an idea, but we're following something that's real. And thank you, because it is real, we can have absolute certainty that you, Lord Jesus, have dealt with our sin. You have removed the punishment of our wrongdoing. And now we are at peace with God. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.